Wait, so we're not calling this 10 Ways Kim Kardashian's Cleavage Will Save Your Financial Portfolio? That's not what we're doing? No, that is what we're doing. No, that's what we're calling it. It's called a, like a tease so that people click on it, Matt, but then we'll just give them some totally that's different content. That's called clickbait. Clickbait. <laughs> hey, it. it's Financial Life Planning. I'm Matt Robeson with my co-host, Mike Morton, who is the actual resident expert here. And we are just debating, could we make today's episode title a little bit sexier? Probably not. If you wanted to call it the 60-40 401k portfolio is dead. At least well, you got the word dead in there. When you read it in that voice, of course, it's terrible. That's well, okay. just your reading job. Give, oh, give me, all right, give me the hot version of that, please. What? It's dead? A 60-40 401k portfolio is dead? Nope, that didn't See? work. Hey, what is what is a 60-40 401k portfolio? Oh, that's a good question. All right, yeah, 60-40. So the 60-40 portfolio, Matt is 60% stocks, 40% bonds. When you talk about asset allocation, portfolios, you often have these two halves that you start with, stocks and bonds. And reminder that stocks are, you own a piece of the company. So as that company does better and makes more profits, you actually own a piece of that and they'll give you some dividends or that goes up in value because it's worth more because the company's growing, making great profits. And you own part of that company. Whereas bonds are an IOU, you've lent money to somebody and they usually pay you some interest um, and then you get your money back, assuming that company or whoever you lent it to does not default, does not renege on their promise to give you the money back. Ownership stocks, IOUs, bonds, 60-40 is this classic portfolio that's studied throughout history, 60% stocks. 40% bonds, rebalancing back to that 60%, 40% every year. And it's been a tremendously great portfolio over the last 40 years. It's just done really well. So it's been highlighted many times as being a great portfolio to have 60-40. And that's where you see these titles and that's what it means. Got it. So this is basically the eulogy that we're doing here for the 60-40 401k portfolio. So we talk a lot about diversifying your portfolio, you explain a lot about why you want a, a proportion in stocks, a proportion in bonds. This sounds real basic, but why do you want to split your financial assets between stocks and bonds in the first place? Oh, man, I love that question. So you, you don't have to. You could be 100% stocks. And if I was recommending someone who's 24 years old, just getting their first job, just setting up their first 401k, I would say go 100% into stocks, not 60-40, 100-0. But the reason we tend to have this diversification, stocks and bonds, is they behave very differently. So stocks tend to go up more. They tend to give more return over time. All right, so they tend to do better. They're gonna make more money owning stocks. That's why I give that 24-year-old that advice. Hey, just own 100% stocks. You will make more money over time. The problem with stocks is that they're riskier. We use the word risk, they're riskier. What that means in this context is they're volatile. All right, so don't confuse the two between risk and volatility. They're more volatile, which means they go up and down more often throughout the month, the year, and things like that. So your 100% stock investment could lose 30 or 40 or 50% of its value in a single year. And that's really, that hurts losing 40%, even cut in half, 50% of your value in one year. Whereas bonds are the opposite. They don't make a whole lot over time. They do pretty well. They chug along, but they're not nearly as volatile. They don't go up or down nearly as much. Five or 10% would be a massive change in a year 
for bonds. And we did have that recently, but that's a real outlier when it comes to these IOUs lending money, especially. And then there's a whole, there's a whole range on each of those stocks have a whole range of risk and reward. I could lend money to Matt's startup company, and I'm pretty sure that's going to be super volatile. It's either going to hit it massive hundred X return, or it's going to go to nothing. I'm going to lose all my money versus the S and P 500 or the U S stock market is not going to be nearly as volatile. The same with bonds. If I lend money to the U S government, I'm pretty sure I'm getting my money back. Like they're a pretty good returner of the capital that, that you lend to them. So you can buy us treasuries, us bonds. But if I lend it to emerging markets or to any, again, single companies would issue bonds. I could lend it to Matt might want to borrow someone. I could lend it to him. That might be a riskier uh, lending. So each of these have a lot of range in terms of their volatility and their risk. Lending me money is a great idea. I think everyone <laughs> should idea. do it as long as you have no expectation of payback. Why? Right. I guess what I don't understand is you're explaining you're going to make more money if you're in it for the long run, if you're in stocks. And when you're talking about here in, in our sexy title, the 60-40-401k portfolio is dead, 401k is for your retirement. That sounds like a long haul proposition. So why was this ever a thing? Why was a 60-40 split with 40% in bonds ever a thing if you're in this for the long haul for your retirement? That's a really good question. So this comes from the Wall Street Journal article and a friend of mine passed this over to me and said, hey, Mike, I would love to talk about this. I'd love to learn more. So here we are, Matt. That's why we're talking about it. So this was a Wall Street Journal article that was called You Are Set and Forget 401k made you rich, no more. So that's the title of the article. And so I thought we'd discuss some of the things that it, it said inside of there. And it really started off with a 60-40. That's why I pulled it out, which I don't, I don't know why they did that. Because like you just said, Matt, if you're in your 20s and 30s, the target date funds, we've talked about target date funds. In your 20s and 30s, those target date funds are like 90% stock, Okay. So they're going to be a much higher percentage of stocks. So it's not really a 60-40, but that's what they pulled out in this article. And the reason, I'll pause there, and then we can get into why. I'm genuinely today. mystified. Please go on. No, I, it, this really makes no sense. It's why the settings on your mimeograph machine may no longer be up to date. It's, yeah, have you heard of target date funds? We have modern things that, like, it doesn't make sense to me. They're conflating two different, two different things here. So they mentioned the 60-40 because it's been this classically researched portfolio, like I just mentioned. So I think that's why they mm. threw it in there and they threw in some statistics around how that portfolio has done over time and it's done really well. And then they're trying to say in your 401k, you might really want to pay attention to this because that's your retirement. So it's just trying to catch people's eye. But the one of the points they brought up in there, which is what I want to talk about a little bit is the bond side. I said bonds are not that they don't go up and down nearly as much. They're pretty safe. But the reason the 60-40 is done really well, and if you did have that, in your retirement because target date funds are relatively new. So maybe 40 years ago, you just had this split of 60, 40 and just set it and forget it. And it's done really well for you. And part of that reason is because the bond side has done really well over the last 40 years. The last 40 years oh. for bonds has been tremendous compared to say the last hundred years. All right. So the last 40 years have been really great. Now, a lot of that comes down to when your endpoints are. Did you really just start? You always got to take a slice in time when you're measuring something. And so if you take the slice of time the last 40 years from, say, the mid-70s, right? But if you go back to the mid-60s, say the previous, ten, shift it by 10 years and take that 40 years, 
it's going to be a lot worse. So it really depends on the endpoints. But the last 40 years have been great for bonds for the following reason. What was going on in the 70s, Matt? Where was inflation and interest rates? Oh, it's, it's my favorite word in the world, stagflation. It sounds like you're going out for a bachelor party and uh, you all blow up balloons, I guess. Yeah, uh, where, you know. where are the deer? Where yeah, are the it's deer? Stagnancy <laughs> with inflation. Boy, that's a portmanteau that really should oh, be retired. But yeah, high inflation. And it's interesting because we had this little recession in 1981 to 1982, which was actually terrible. It was really bad. Fun fact, fun like for people of our age, you might remember the classic political ad, Morning in America, 1984, Ronald Reagan, right? Morning in America again, right? Things are so much better than they were. Turns out, not entirely true. In fact, inflation and unemployment were worse in 1984 than they were in 1980 when Mr. Reagan assumed the presidency. It's just that people have a certain amount of recency bias. And things got so horrible in 1982, including with inflation, that people were like, oh yeah, things are better than they were two years ago. That's right. So that's essentially what happened. But since 1982, we've had 40 years of historically low inflation, right? Not only historically low, but it's the starting point. Again, you just mentioned it. High inflation, high interest rates, above 10%. All your borrowing was over 10%. All your investments in bonds were over 10%. You were making 15%. Matt, you could go out and just get 15% on your cash for 10, 20 years, like 20-year treasury bonds. 15%. I was like, man, I would take that today. But the point here is this. So they're over 10%, okay? And for the last 40 years, interest rates have been falling, all right? From over 10% all the way down to zero, and, that, and as we've had on previous episodes, when interest rates fall, bond prices rise. Now, you don't get the interest anymore. You get less interest, but your principal has gone up in value. Okay, so bonds, the bond price when you're holding that bond rises and interest rates fall. So bonds over the last 40 years, the total return on bonds over the last 40 years is higher than it's ever been in a 40-year period. From that falling, from the high inflation, high interest rates falling all the way down. And that's why it's written up today, right? Where are we today, Matt? Inflation's spiking again. Interest rates are starting to go up. We're only at 5 6%, but they're going up. And so that's really hurting the bond side of the 60-40 portfolio. That actually answers my question. I guess that makes a lot of sense then, right? So if you have a 40-year run of low inflation, great bond returns, then even a 60-40 portfolio in your 401k could make a lot of sense. Now, look, I'm assuming here that if you're closer to retirement, 60-40 might actually still make some sense, but maybe not. I'm just saying that, yeah, young in your career, if you've got a long time horizon, I see what you're saying about you want to be mostly stocks, if not all stocks. When you get a little closer, reducing that volatility, you don't want to have your whole portfolio wiped out because the stock market has a bad year. Right. Now here's, so let's talk about both of those because here's the pro other problem of where we are today. So we've just seen the last few years, interest rates rising, inflation rising. So that's really crushed the bond part of our portfolio. And in 2022, both stocks and bonds got crushed, um, which was terrible. It's the first time it's happened in 50 years that both yeah. of them went down significantly. So that's a problem. The other problem of where we are today, and again, the Wall Street Journal article highlighted this. And if you look up the Schiller PE ratio, 
it gives you the sense of valuation of the stock market. And when I say valuation, it means how pricey is stuff? Like you have a sense when you go in the grocery store, 12 dozen eggs, yeah, is this kind of a pricey or, or a little bit cheaper or just comparing across stores? So the same is true in the stock market. How pricey is the stock market? And the Schiller PE ratio kind of gets at that. And it's pricey, it's pricey, okay? Mm. Even though we've come down a little bit from the highs from six, 12 months ago, it's still very pricey. Now it's been pricey for the last 20 years, I'll be honest, okay? It's gone up and down, but it's been on the more pricey side. But the upshot is this, when the stock market is more pricey, now we're just talking stocks here, not bonds. When the stock market is pricier, okay? Of course your future returns aren't gonna be as good. You're buying at like a high, you're buying at the expensive time to buy something. Versus if there was a time that the stock market's a little more average or a little bit on sale even, that's when you'd love to buy in. So right now, the other problem with the next 10 years is that we're at a higher stock price. So you're buying at $100. And over the next 10 years, it might not get much above $100, maybe a year return. So the return, future returns aren't looking too good based on where we are today. Are you ready to create your ideal lifestyle? Let's discover what's most important to you and design a plan to have more of that in your life. Go to meetmikemorton.com. All one word, meetmikemorton.com. That makes sense to me. If the price of what you're getting as a ratio compared to the earnings that the underlying companies are getting, if it's relatively high, I mean, in general, you're saying like, that's um, that's maybe a little overpriced. This is this right. doesn't this doesn't seem like as good an investment. So why is the 60-40 ratio so dead then? If we're in a perhaps slightly overvalued stock market environment, why don't bonds look more attractive? Is it all just the inflation and, and, and interest rates? But yeah, bonds are still good. And they're always good to have as a balance. Again, it depends on what kind of bonds that you have. Now let's talk to, let's talk before we, we can get back to the priciness of stocks and what to do about mm. that. There's not, unfortunately, there's not a ton you can do. That's just where we are. The store has a dozen eggs. And if you want to buy eggs, that's what you have to pay. Yeah, there's the no eggs. market substitutes here. Yeah. So there's a few things that you can, that you could think about doing. But basically, yeah, no market substitutes. You just put away your 401k payment for the month from your paycheck. It gets automatically invested and that's what you're buying. So now on the, the bond side, we've taken a big hit. I said in the last couple of years, bonds have gotten crushed. And because of interest rates going up from zero very quickly, the fastest that the interest rates have ever risen, which really hurt total bond returns. So we're in, I think we've taken a lot of the pain, but could it get worse from here? Absolutely. I told you yeah. we were five or 6%, could it go to 12%? Yes, <laughs> that could happen. So we'll see what comes next, but let's turn to your other question around retirees. So what do you, what do, you do then? Matt, Mike's telling me stock prices are pretty high. Maybe returns aren't gonna be that good for the next 10 year. Don't know where bonds are gonna go from here. Are they gonna continue to chug along? Are they gonna get crushed again or not? If I need to live off this portfolio, what do I do? So here's the way to approach that I do with all my clients. You wanna set aside the money you're gonna spend for the next five to 10 years in very safe assets. Specifically, I use short-term bonds or just even CDs. Mm -hmm. Something that US bonds, a two-year or three-year, or just a super short-term bond fund, 
You get 5% on your money right now, and it's really not at risk of going down. You can lock it in with six-month CD, 12-month CD, three-year CDs, get that same kind of 5%. So money that you need in three years from now, when you're on a fixed living expense, almost no longer working, or you're in retirement, not working, you need to spend $50,000 to supplement your social security. Take the 50,000, have it available for the next seven years, 50,000 a year for each year over the next seven years. The rest of your portfolio could be in these slightly riskier stocks, maybe a little bit more bonds, but basically stocks. So seven years or to 10 years of actual spending held in super, not just a bond, general bond portfolio, but super safe CDs or US treasuries. So that, that money's gonna be available. If we have something where stocks and bonds get crushed again, we're in a recession, it goes four or five years before it comes back, you've got your money safe and available to spend. That sounds like a pretty defensive strategy, but it, but you're, what you're saying is that we're in a position where there's a lot of uncertainty and you can't rule out and you're, you're, you want people to protect their position first, that protect their core assets for the next five to seven years. Yeah, here's the thing about it, Matt. I'm a very risk taker, all right? So I like going in on stuff and I'll take whatever comes my way, I will take and roll with that. But most people aren't like that and most people can't take and roll with whatever happens. Hey, mm. my portfolio is down 35%. Cool, I'll just roll with that. <laughs> no, guys, like I had to replace my car, I've got my mortgage payments, I've got, st I got stuff I gotta spend. So that's where we lock in like the next five to 10 years in cash. It's safe and available because I'm telling you, like I just told you the expense, the stock market's a little bit expensive. Don't expect stellar returns in the next few years. I never know what the next few years, but even the next 10 years, eh, I'm not going to expect 10% a year for the next 10 years um, because of the, the prices of the, at the current levels. And so I would definitely lock in your actual spending for the next five to 10 years, having that knowing exactly where it comes from. Because when you look at previous recessions and the stock market, the dip on average is three and a half years. So between, oh, it was a peak and then it goes down and then comes back up three and a half years, but longer ones take up to 10 years to come back and recover. So any of your stock that you have investments in the stock market, think of 2000 to 2010, they call it the lost decade. In 2000, 2001, the stock market was super expensive. Then it got crushed and then it slowly came back up and got crushed again. <laughs> and so your 10 year return was not that great. Now there are periods in there you could take some earnings, but your 10 year return wasn't that great. So you have to have some defense. If you're on retirement, mm. you're no longer working, you gotta think defense first. Let's talk about the offense side though, a little bit, because hopefully once you've done this step of really trying to protect your next five to seven years, you still have some assets that you're looking at wanting to grow a little bit more aggressively than that. Now, you're not suggesting that people get super exotic. It's, it's REIT time, baby, or I'm going for commodities or like Turkish prisons. You're still saying stay within the stock market for those growth opportunities. Yeah, and I go, we've talked about it, low cost index funds, good diversification, U.S., international, big companies, small companies. I will say this, though. The Wall Street Journal article had the quote. The quote is, you might want to look in other places than just the U.S., yeah, large cap. So small capitalization, emerging markets, and value stocks offer the benefit of diversification at what seems like much cheaper prices. 
That's a quote from the journal article. And I agree that in general, I would have, let's say the, the stock side of your portfolio. So you're in retirement. Uh, you've set up 10 years of safe cash, 50,000 a year. So you've got 500,000 in very short-term treasuries and CDs and stuff. The rest of the money t that's you're going to spend 10 years from now, I would say, yeah, you can put that into the stock market. And so that side, the 100% stock market, I'd have... 80, 70 to 80% of it in U.S. large cap, international large cap. A bulk of it, a good bulk in those low-cost index funds with the large cap stuff. But I definitely diversify into small cap stocks and emerging markets and the value stocks. I think I agree with the Wall Street Journal that it's a good place for looking. They've been cheap for a while and they haven't performed that well. I'll be honest, Matt, I've been in them for a few years and they haven't done that the last few years. But I still have the expectation that they are cheaper. They're way, way cheaper. Okay, so future returns, 10 years, <laughs> let's measure in 10-year time, time horizons, should be a little bit better. So you can look at diversifying into those asset classes. Again, there are low-cost index funds for emerging markets and for value stocks. So you can look into those. All right, this has been a very meaty and practical conversation. So I want to get a little bit more esoteric as we wind down toward the end. Look, when I studied economics in college longer ago than I'd like to admit, I was super into macroeconomics, public sector economics. My financial economics course, I have to say, just never really resonated with me, which is why I'm perfect for this show, because I can ask a lot of dumbass questions and I really mean them. Like I'm not just I'm not just whistling Dixie here. I guess what I don't understand is you were talking about price earnings ratios and this measure of Okay, what we pay for stocks seems to be a little bit higher than the underlying value and earnings that the companies are producing. That should be what you're paying for is, right? Are these companies going to make money or not? I guess what I don't understand is as we're recording this, we're fresh off the news that the last quarter, GDP growth in the United States, 4.9%. That is robust. That is strong. And there's a lot of this underlying public sector investment. This is something I know more about. I'm more in my wheelhouse where we've got investment in infrastructure, which is the productive capacity of the economy overall, the, the relative efficiency of businesses, the logistics of, of businesses. We have this investment in semiconductor technology, manufacturing, advanced manufacturing in electric vehicles and um, other uh, kind of, uh, you know, green technologies. It's a lot of really good pro-growth with the short-term data about growth of GDP and sort of these longer-term, hey, the government is making some investments here that we should expect will help our American businesses over time. Why is that P-E ratio so far out of whack? Why is the stock market overvalued? Don't Aren't there indications that earnings should continue to grow and be strong into the future? Earnings are usually continuing and strong. They usually go up over time. <laughs> so that's good news. Yeah, that's but my second question. I'll get to that. <laughs> but the, the CAPE ratio is by Nobel laureate Robert Schiller. So it's called the Schiller CAPE ratio. And it's the, you've said a few times, it's the price to earnings. And it's a measure of how much you might overpay the price for the earnings of the company. Now, in a perfect world, Matt, we'd be able to measure all these things. And I could tell you exactly how much Google is worth. 
because I know how much they're earning. I know their capitalization and everything. And so you can use a discount rate and tell you exactly what Google's worth. And if I know what Google's worth, then I know what the whole market's worth. And I could tell you exactly what we should be paying for the S&P 500. The problem is a couple of things. You're making a lot of assumptions. All right. Mm. In there, like the discount rate, which is tied to interest rates, which clearly we don't know where they're going or who would have had good predictions a few years ago. The other biggest problem is really that you're dealing with humans. And that's what it comes down to. That's why there's no way to know what's going to happen in six months, 12 months or two years. Even though I have an inkling 10 years, 20 years, I'm getting a little bit more you know, confident with my predictions. The next couple of years, you have no idea because it all comes down to humans because the humans set the price. The right. humans are deciding what we're gonna trade for Google stock, what it's worth. And depending on the news cycle, so in the, the pandemic, right? Suddenly the news was all shutting down and this and that. Depending on the news cycle, people get very fearful and lots of selling. Oh man, the world is, is coming to an end. The death of stocks, right? The death of equities. The world is coming to an end. We got to get out of these things. The black swan, S&P 500 losing 20% in a single day. That's like what? The earnings of all these companies changed 20% overnight? No. So that's where the price really fluctuates. It's because of the right. humans involved. That's an old saying in economics. It's half a joke, half just a reality. Is when you ask, what is something worth? It's like, whatever someone will pay for it. And that's... Yeah. Definitely the case in the stock market. Look, my other esoteric question was going to be what you alluded to a second ago. Why do stock prices go up? But let's save that. I seriously want to save that. Let's do that in a future episode because it's not inherently obvious. Like, why do things always get better and more valuable? That doesn't yeah. necessarily compute. Rising ocean let's talk floats about... all boats. It's perfect. Oh, <laughs> but why are the oceans rising? Oh, wait. The answer to that is known and depressing. Let's not talk about that. All Let's right. talk about the death of the 604401k. All right, anything else to cover? No, that's it, man. That was a lot in there. All right, a lot in there. Great advice. As always, for Mike Morton, I'm Matt Robeson. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for joining us on Financial Planning for Entrepreneurs. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can connect with me at LinkedIn or MortonFinancialAdvice.com. I'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or question, please email me at FinancialPlanningPod at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered for investment advice. Opinions expressed as are of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. We do not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the data presented here.